it was kind of helpful. It was necessary to stop people from finding me out if they type my name <laughs> into Google. It was incredible. It was like watching a magic trick. And I thought, how has he done that? The trouble is you've got to walk that tightrope between not being nasty and not being too nice. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Kit Lovelace. Exactly said right. that right. Said that right. Well and, and you said you'd not said it out loud. No, it's not a name that I've said out loud. It's not my real name. It was a pen name bestowed upon me by another anonymous blogger. And it was sort of for a short while in 2010, part of a, a coven of uh, mysterious writers. And I had no need for a name for a long time. And then um, I kind of needed one. And she came up with one. I was too self-conscious to, to come up with my own pen name. It's a, it's a, it's a. It's a strange one to, to come yeah. up with, isn't it? Oh, it's, it, yeah, it, it's pretty much a job that involves everything I hate and everything against my sort of natural instincts. <laughs> so uh, so she, she came up with one to save me from squirming. Do you know how she derived it? I know the surname was from a Midsummer Murders <laughs> episode. Oh, right. Kit is, yeah, is, uh, is closely related to uh, my actual name. <laughs> so it sound like a sort of Mills and Boone. You can't explain that bit. Bodice, bodice ripper style. Uh, it does sound like it does sound like a Mills and Boone. That was her, her intention, certainly. But yeah, no, it's not something I've ever really said out loud. Are you happy with it? Am I happy with it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I like it actually. Lovelace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Do you feel connected to that name? Yeah, in a way, I kind of do. It's not exaggerated, and it's not necessarily a persona. There's something about that that's quite useful for channeling particular thoughts. The name was for a very particular project I did, which was uh, writing about relationships in my love life. It was kind of helpful. It was necessary to stop people from finding me out if they type my name <laughs> into Google and that sort of thing. But also it does kind of afford me an opportunity to be honest. I read a quote the other day. It was, oh, it was Oscar Wilde. I can't believe I'm quoting Oscar Wilde like really early on. It's a terrible sort of Clinton cards habit. <laughs> uh, but it was something like give a, give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth is, it's something, it's, I'm paraphrasing I think there is something about that when I know it's not directly traceable back to me that I can be I guess more honest about things like that which is which is helpful and useful because I think the, that's you, true. You, you sort of you, you lose uh, your ego I suppose or a certain part of it so it's, it's nice for that it's nice to be able to do those things very cathartic to sort of say things that you would occasionally be a bit too embarrassed to have. Absolutely. I mean, that's sort of the opposite of the, the of what I'm kind of doing currently with my life in terms of podcasting as my real name. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to be truthful. But, I mean, you never can be 100% truthful yeah. if, you have, if you're putting your name to it. I think you're, you're right. If you're working under a pseudonym, perhaps you can say something more true. And it's the same thing that writers do when they write characters. Mm -hmm. the, the characters can go to places that they would not be comfortable Claim, yeah, absolutely. claiming as their own absolutely to explain these background sounds that I've been pouring tea and there's tea stuff around yes. oh, uh, it's, it's lovely I've, I've, I've come to Dave's house to do this I'd have had you around to mine but I know that I just don't have the sort of tools for hospitality we'd have been drinking out of plastic cups and I don't mind drinking out of plastic cups but I, I'm happy to have people around as well run down to the newsagent to get whatever dusty European biscuits they have in <laughs> Kit 
Lovelace isn't your real name. No. But generally speaking, we're going to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it it is me. It's it's just uh, it's, it's just not. It's just a very, It's a purely administrative thing. Yeah, absolutely. There is no character at large or anything like that. That that'd be quite weird. I'd find that quite hard to be interviewed as a sort of persona. So the first question that I ask people is, how do you know me? We met at a storytelling night, I believe. If I'm right in thinking that. Uh-huh. I was playing piano for it and you were recording it. So we were part of the production team yes, putting I it on. Yes, I guess that's true. I think actually the first time that I met you might have been you were playing piano and I was telling a story. Oh, right, okay. But I think, yeah, the second time around I was probably more present. Yes, Because I yeah. was not worrying about telling a story. Yeah. You've had Joe on our own, haven't you? I have, yeah. Yes, so the, the night yeah. is Spark London, which is a true storytelling event. In fact, the first time I met you, I guess you will have been the person responsible for... Pressing the key on the on yes, the piano yeah, to tell yeah, yeah. me to, to, to it's time up. to shut up. <laughs> I always feel bad about doing that because I've done some storytelling on stage, and I I know how much I. Uh, oh, I'm about to imply that you waffle. That isn't true. Well, but you know, you I kind of waffle. you lose track Anyone of the time, the and you kind of think, that. oh, I'm, I'm kind of coming to a close, but you you sort of intrinsically feel like you've been waffling and I always feel bad putting people in that position but that's just my, well, your jo- my job crushing just politeness not to do it but yeah so, just to um, tell them what, when the time's up I know I know and I know and people wouldn't take it personally and go but it is hard play, but they it, shut up it, it, well I don't know I bet some people do take it personally because it is hard because the first story I told at the Spark was a really a very personal sort of story you know a sort of traumatic event mm-hmm. that that's spectacular. I'm just noticing that out of all the biscuits you could go for, you went for the half biscuit. Very Bri- that's a very half. British thing to very do. British. <laughs> I think I would have done the you same know, thing. Well, the good thing about that is there's another half for you to take. So yeah, that's, be as that's true. In fact, I'll take possible. the other half now. But but yeah, I was. It was that a very... is actually me all over. It is, it is weird <laughs> what what is revealed to you in doing these in the way that you things. Eat. Yeah. A dunker as well, which I approve. A of. dunker. Yeah. That moment when the piano kind of comes in to tell you that your time's mm-hmm. up it, that when I told my first story it kind of hit me out of the blue and I I kind of thought how do I fit all of these events and be fair to all of the people yeah. in those events yeah. um, into this minute because it's a minute warning isn't it or something or two minutes yeah yeah, yeah. well it's yeah it's... I mean and I know I, I know realistically that if I carried on past the time then I would be allowed to yeah, no one's going to stop me. Rugby tackle it, you off exactly. the stage, or but I mean, I'm I'm feel very responsible about being keeping to time when I can. Yeah. Now I'm running my own night. I definitely feel that yeah, everyone yeah. should keep keep to time. You'll get that. <laughs> I think what you say about being fair to people is is I think one of my biggest concerns because if you rush through things, and certainly when you're telling true stories, and particularly when you're telling true stories about other people or that involve other people, yeah, there's a certain element of, and I know for a fact, certainly with Spark that people put a lot of thought into their stories and, and it's not just sort of people gabbing away. These people have kind of crafted the stories yeah. uh, for an audience. And then, yeah, <laughs> just like, come on, speed it up. It just is a bit of a, I just, I don't like being the person doing that. I think it's actually, you know, it's good for the night because you don't want people going on. I once did a story night with a guy. This was uh, somewhere else. It was up in the East Midlands. It was a guy just talking about a horrible experience he'd had in hospital. Not a, not a medically horrible experience. He was just taking it as a chance to rail against the local health authority to a crowd of largely indifferent people. And it honestly went on for 20 minutes. And it was there was no narrative arc to it. It was just, oh, and then you wouldn't believe what happened. And then, ooh, and it was, you know, kind of awful. And you wish that somebody would 
push him off the stage. Yeah. But you know, some people can talk for twenty minutes about nothing and be absolutely absolutely riveting. yeah, riveting. So, it really depends you know. on the person. I know that's the that's the complicated thing about yeah. it. The other question that I ask is, what do you do now? I split my time, a freelance writer, and I teach in a college on a performing arts and musical theatre course. I'm an accompanist and singing tutor, and I do that a couple of days a week as well. And the odd piano job here and there. Any weird and interesting ones? I've been the pianist in residence for a literary publication. I play the Paul Elliott Festival and things like that. Okay. Weird little awesome jobs. I played for the, um, you know, the Channel 4 show Skins? Yeah. I played for one of their Christmas parties, which oh, was nice. a very odd thing. I was sat in one corner of the room playing Last Christmas and Harry Enfield's bum was very sort of close to my, just because he was mingling, not because of anything peculiar. He was just sort of standing near the piano and uh, it was a sort of bizarre evening. And in those kind of gigs, you're like the background music. Yeah, yeah. So Thankfully, you... in those sorts of things, people are talking too much to pay attention to what you're doing, so you can make loads of mistakes. How do you feel about the idea of background music? I mean, it's a skill in itself, I think, but I um, musicians have complicated feelings about the idea sometimes. It's something I don't really consciously consider generally, but I think if you go into a room, a party or something like that, and there is no music, I think that's something I would notice, whereas I wouldn't notice the background music, and I yeah. suppose the trick of it is... To be unnoticeable. For, exactly. Yeah. I make music, but I'm very much a songwriter. Yeah. And for better or worse, I can't sing a song at a gig and it be background music. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. There are some artistically valid arguments about that. And it also means that I'm a hard person to program, I think, into a night. It, dep- like, it depends what kind of a night you want yeah. to happen. I've always kind of wished I could be someone who could play in the background. I've played in a few bands. I think when I've done that, I've been very much in the same mindset. You... you don't want people yeah, 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 around talking to think well, we, we didn't get many sets and we didn't have much material but it would be like we're doing our seven songs it's only going to take You're here 21 to minutes out of your time just exactly. to sort of Listen pay to attention the music, and then yeah. you can talk but w- when it comes to playing background I mean actually it's I panic about it in advance thinking god I'm going to have to be really good at this and you know no two hours of music and if I play wrong notes people are going to go oh what's he oh who's this joker on the piano get him off get him off when in actual fact, most people don't really notice or care, which is perfect because you can stretch songs out for ages, so it actually suits me. Every time I sit down and realise in the room that no one's actually paying attention. Mind you, I've, I've been in bars where I've heard piano players, and there was, a, there was an amazing one, I was on the South Bank somewhere, and just I was talking to a friend I hadn't seen in years. She's Canadian and an absolute delight, and we hadn't seen each other in years, and we were sat there, and I kept breaking the conversation every two or three minutes because I go, hang on, he's playing. Is he playing King of Rock and Roll by Prefab Sprout? Shh, shh, just listen. <laughs> he is, that's... Hot dog jumping frog. Yeah, that's a... Sorry, carry on. And then she talked for two minutes and I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, um... Is this Montel Jordan? I think it might be. And I just, you know, carrying on just yeah, yeah, every... Yeah. Spotting all the tracks and he was brilliant. I definitely find that quite hard as well in parties sometimes. I do find it hard to not tune into the music in the mm. background. And some people really don't tune in, so it, you, you did, there is that kind of disconnection sometimes between you and who you're talking to, where yeah. you're distracted by the music. That's quite a frequent experience for me, I think. Yeah, you feel really impolite as well. Yeah, <laughs> well, absolutely. At least don't you? I constantly feel impolite. You you just kind of are tuned into something else, and you go, "Sorry, excuse me, hang on." Oh, all oh, right. Sorry, uh, as you were saying, you just want to make sure, just yeah. get that little hook, because sometimes you can hear songs. I don't know if this ever happens to you. I thought it happened to me earlier today. I thought I could hear a song, and I'm. Entirely sure it was one song, and then I left the room that I was in. I could hear it next door, and then moved next door, and it was a completely different song. And I just had it playing in my head 
Yeah, because you want a little hook from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just got lodged in, and lodged I, in. my my brain had been doing most of the work for me, and it was a completely different song. But there are little bits of other of all sorts of different songs in songs. Like I always think, when I'm writing a song, if I if I notice a bit, it's like another song. Apart from trying to ignore the fact that I've noticed a bit, it's like another song. I always feel okay because I know that the next bit isn't, mm -hmm. you know. And so there might be that one bit that's similar, and then by the time you get to your final mix, it's hard. It's hard to dif to notice any of it. I have got one of the worst habits in the world, and that is mixing songs in my head. And the worst, the absolute worst, I've had is mixing the bridge of I think it's the bridge of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band with the bridge of Roller Coaster by Bewitched and I oh can't God. separate them in my head and um, the lines are sort of the melody is, is, is pretty much exactly the same yeah. and so if I hear the beginning of one I'll just slide into it and I always end on Bewitched which is the worst thing if I could get out of Bewitched and into the Beatles that would be fine that would be good but I can't stay in the Beatles I always end up back going back Bewitched. to Bewitched yeah. which is not a way to live your life <laughs> I like that. Phil, the other one is, um, it's, and it's particularly Phil Collins' version, it's the Nolan Sisters' I'm in the mood for dancing into Phil Collins' version of You Can't Hurry Love. Just the, the very first line of the Nolan Sisters' um, yeah, I'm I can, in the mood for yeah, yeah. dancing, romancing, it's a game I've given, take you can't hurry love. And I know yeah, the yeah, version yeah. is the same, but it's very, it's just hear Phil Collins' version in my head. And it, they, the, the, the timing changes, and it's, I, it must be from, I reckon it's from like those Time Life, is it? Those adverts that do the kind of, it'll be hits of the 60s, uh, yeah. hits of the, you know, they weren't from the 60s, hits of the 80s or whatever it is. And then, and they then they'll just play and they mix them together, like a now, now that's what I call music advert. And then you just, I don't know the songs well enough beforehand, and then they get irreparably irre lodged together. Well, I guess, I mean, you're playing a lot of songs. You must know mm. a lot of songs. The way I play is a real cheats way. Completely by chance, it's apparently how my grandfather used to play. He used to play for dances and things around where he lived. I remember I was really struggling with my, I guess, grade three or something exam. And I was also trying to play music from Disney's Aladdin at the same time as sort of extracurricular homework. And uh, he just picked the book up and I knew for a fact he hadn't seen the film and started playing these songs. And I knew it wasn't, I also knew it wasn't the music written, the notation written, because I knew how that was supposed to sound, but just couldn't play it. And it was incredible. It was like watching a magic trick. And I thought, how has he done that? And it's, it was the, from the guitar chords above the music. And he just sort of filled in all the blanks himself because he knew the keyboard so well that he could just see, you know, A and figure out exactly what he needed to play and the few little tricks to get between chord to chord and stuff like that. It didn't dawn on me at the time. It didn't dawn on me for another sort of 15 years that that was a way of playing the piano. And then when I figured that out, I was like, oh God, this is so quick. So you can, by the end of a pop song, know how to play it, which is one of the handiest things I've ever been taught. So you just um, go with the guitar chords? So yeah, so now I've got a book of, of just like uh, the, verse and the, the first verse and the chorus written out, and then the letters just above the lines, and I just add to that as I go. The curse is as well that you never learn anything properly enough that it sounds properly impressive. Oh, okay. It's just sort of like, it's, a, it's, it's busking, I suppose, but for... It's just hard to bring a piano down to uh, Oxford Circus Station and sort of set up. Did you have a piano in your house growing up? I did, yeah. I remember how I started playing it. <laughs> it was an exchange. My parents, or my father in particular, uh, really wanted to have a piano in the house. It was my paternal grandfather that played. So he was desperate to get one and to convince my mum. He got me and my sister to play as well. And he made a deal with me that he would take me to the Games Master Live exhibition at the Birmingham NEC. <laughs> 
So this was December 1992, I remember it very specifically, if I would take six lessons with the local piano teacher. Loved Games Master and video games at the time, yeah. so I absolutely signed on for that, thinking I could bluff my way through six lessons, and actually really enjoyed it. And I'm the only one that still plays. My sister and my dad both gave up. Oh, what was the what was the beginning well, of this question? Um, I was really I was saying, well, did you have a piano? Oh, piano in the, in the house. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So yes, I did, and I and it turned out it sort of became mine just through possession through, being intense. Long, of, yeah, you yeah, yeah. Longer. You enjoy the piano, like is, is it is it is it something that you have a kind of passion for? What's your relationship to the piano? Yeah, I'm I, I do. I really like it, and I'm really, really pleased I can play now. There was times when I didn't really care for it and hated going to lessons and at one point refused to go and, and stopped and didn't play for a while. But it's led to, and I'll never, I'll never be a, a full-time professional musician, I just am nowhere near good enough and don't really have that much drive to do it either, but that I have enough functional skill doing it, I get the odd sort of offer to do fun things that I would never ordinarily yeah. It's sort of opened a door to me that is, is quite exciting. And you get to play, you know, just occasionally getting to play a gig in a sort of sweaty indie club or something. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. Someone's decided that it's actually quite a big night for them and they want to get a keyboard player in just to sort of, so you get drafted in for a couple of weeks of rehearsals and then do it. It's just a nice thing to sort of uh, be able to do. In terms of actual sort of, you know, I'll play every day. I've got a piano in my room, uh, in my flat. You know, I, I, I will sit down at it. I find it quite relaxing, but uh, it's... Is it something you go to when you're, when you need to sort of work something through in your head or something like that, or when you, you know, do you use it as therapy? I guess. Not consciously, possibly. I do it as a. It, it's certainly a procrastination tool. <laughs> um, yeah, I get that. So when I'm not, you know, when I should be sort of sat writing something at my laptop and then just can't get into it, I'll just nip to the other side of the room and, and play around for, you know. 20 minutes but then I guess when it's when the piano work is my job I've had to be tr I've had to transcribe some songs um, these last few weeks for a, a, a project that I'm teaching and um, they've been a nightmare they're just such illogical melodies <laughs> and and confusing timings that actually it's so much like work that it's driven me back to my laptop to do some writing so it's quite nice to sort of have conflicting awful jobs to have to do not awful is <laughs> unfair but uh, tricky um, hard work I suppose yeah. actual mind engaging hard work that's what I don't like doing so as soon as the piano becomes that I'm sat at the laptop typing away and as soon as the laptop becomes hard mind engaging work I'm back to the piano to sort of play songs from Sonic the Hedgehog 2 and stuff like that that's cool I'm a big fan <laughs> of computer game music so I like mm. the idea of that a lot how did you come to be Kit Lovelace? I was writing online about, I guess, my dating life. Not hugely specifically, but um, the, the... I suppose it was like an anti-advice. It was basically putting forward my situation and then taking people's advice from it and then acting accordingly. And I thought, you know, it was much like talking to your friends about it, but I... I thought that it would be better to get some outsiders. Their objective. Exactly that. I've written it up in the second person. It was done in the style of a choose-your-own-adventure story, just as a way of getting people into my head slightly so that they could make a, a decision on it. I did it for a, for a short while, and a friend of mine read it and enjoyed it, and I ended up getting a girlfriend, so I had to stop. She told me off for stopping writing it. She 
pitched it to her editor. She worked at the Guardian newspaper, and they asked if I would like to revive it and do it as a weekly column and let the readers be my pool of advice givers. So I took them up on it, which meant that I spent 10 months of last year being led around by the readers of The Guardian, then making my romantic decisions for me. It was written anonymously, but since having finished that and still needing uh, <laughs> people's advice, I've become Kit Lovelace. So that's how it all came to be, a series of sort of putting myself out there and letting myself be figuratively manhandled by the general public. By the Guardian readers, which yes, I guess is quite, the, quite the general, general public. But did the audience get really into it? Did you get a big response? Uh, some people did. Some people really, really are on my side. I was completely surprised that I didn't get more in the way of people telling me that I was a, an awful, horrible, thoughtless, callous cad. Maybe they just all kept it to themselves and just were well-mannered and not bringing it to my face. Everybody that was in touch with me was really positive and really seemed to get into it. And as a result, I have a girlfriend in New York who is coming over very soon. And they've acted entirely in my best interests which has been nice and uh, heartwarming and, you know, makes you really sort of pleased to be So, did, I mean, human. they always chose the nice thing. They did, yeah. Which, at times, was a little bit of a drag. Is because that Because I had to generate... Stories. Stories out of, of sort of nice, calm behaviour, which was hard at times. I, I gave them the occasional sort of oddball choice where they could send me over to New York unannounced wearing bright green tights to sort of surprise this girl who, who became my girlfriend but wasn't at the time was just a sort of uh, target of my affection. They could have sent me over to New York wearing yeah tights, knocking on her door unannounced and saying surprise. But they all rightly, I mean absolutely rightly, told me that that was a, Silly a terrible idea. idea. Yeah. The, the workings of a maniac and that I should probably give her plenty of notice so that she can make arrangements and that sort of thing, which is what I did. And, you know, it worked out all right. It worked out brilliantly, but... So I called her up with, you know, this many hours notice and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really make for the most gripping read. But that's, that was, you know, it was something for me. That had, was, that's my issue, not theirs. They, I guess well, you had control over what you... Yeah, I'm going to go for a chocolate one as well, actually. They're, 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 I think they're value or something, so yeah, I don't yeah. think that they were the best digestive, so sorry about that. Mm -mm. I think they were, prob they were probably bought with an eye to be used as a, as a, as a base, for base, a, base, of, a base cheese of a cheesecake rather than as a, <laughs> something to offer to guests. You selected what the choices were for the... Yeah, readers. I suppose that was, so the, that was the... If you'd have been someone prepared to completely, I guess, debase yourself every week in terrible ways, then mm -hmm. you would have only given them terrible oh, choices. Oh, debasing options, yeah. I mean, I guess people... Oh, doing this with a big mouth full of digestive. People <laughs> would often say, God, I can't believe you're actually doing what they're saying. It's crazy. Why would you even do this to yourself? And the truth of it was, and this is sort of the showing you the cogs of it all, but it's, it's really no great surprise. I mean, ultimately, I was in charge of the choices that got put in. Yeah. So... As much as it's true that people did have the, the, the choice to decide what I did, and I did follow their advice much more than I should have done, probably. <laughs> that became one of the things week on week, when people go, come on, you must have made this up. And I honestly, hand on heart, never had. And it got to the stage where after six months of doing it, I was quite tempted and thought, do you know what, rather than go to Plymouth and get stood up, maybe I should just say that I did and not go. And I thought, but then if you do that once, yeah, everything gets called into question then. So I just I felt like I had a sort of 
title to uphold in that sense. So um, I did do these these awful things, but um, and also the danger of it was never there in terms of. Again, I wouldn't have done anything that would have been caused anyone any upset, really, or you know, no, certainly nothing malicious. And basically, I was I, I would have been the butt of it. I wasn't trying to. I wasn't out there to sort of show off what a totally swaggering cool dude I am and. And what a heartbreaker I was because I, mean, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have been able to convincingly bluff my way through that sort of thing. And also, I was also very conscious of the moral side to all yeah. of it. I got found out by somebody. I think she kind of had her suspicions before we went out. And uh, after the column appeared that week, she texted me to, to ask if I was the person writing that Guardian column. And she was a little bit mad with me for a day. And then... Um, I explained myself, I took her out for a drink and essentially weaseled my way out of it. But also, you know, I, I sort of told her that, you know, it hadn't escaped my notice that, uh, well, you that it was sort of... You didn't use anybody's actual, like, like name. Mm, no, 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 nobody, like that. So, absolutely. I mean, mm. in, that, in that respect, it's not as kind of morally complex as, as it would be if you were no. completely fooling them and using their names. And that's and, abs- yeah, no, that would have been... Well, that, um, the, the Guardian wouldn't have printed that for a start. That's true. But I was also conscious of the fact that, regardless of the fact that it's not their name, this probably, this, um, not probably, there definitely is a personal reaction to it. You know, a few people that were reading what I wrote about them, knowing in advance of the date that I was the person that wrote that column. Yeah. And it was tricky at times because you have to, you don't want to be nasty. But if I was... I'll make up a name. Say Penelope was one of these people. She wasn't. But Penelope knows that we're going out on a date. We go out and then I write up this column. If you're enjoying getting better acquainted with me and with my guests, maybe you'd like to help other people find out about the show. There's a few easy ways to do that. You can go on iTunes if you've got five minutes and leave a review saying what you think of it that helps it get higher rankings on itunes and stuff like that what the show really needs is word of mouth and in this internet age that means liking the show's page on facebook or retweeting it or sharing the link to all of your facebook friends or twitter followers doing whatever you need to do in whatever social networking site you use and if you don't use a social networking site well hey you can just tell your friends or email your friends and tell them about what's going on we were just cut off then by my lack of planning, really. Um, ran out of space. And uh, now I've got space back. Unfortunately, cut you off in the middle of no, the that's example. Right. I didn't know where the point was going. So we were talking great. about a basically a fictional conceit yeah, of, a, yeah. of a person trouble with Penelope. With people reading what you write about them. So you don't want to be nasty, or needlessly nasty. Oh, you don't want to be nasty at all, but particularly needlessly nasty. And also, if you uh, are too nice to them, because you know they're reading it, then the readers think, well, why, why would you not go out with her again? When in actual fact, I wouldn't want to, or it wouldn't work out, and you don't right. want to inadvertently lead someone on because the readers have told you because you've written this glowing portrait of so you don't, Penelope. You don't want the you so, don't want to put the readers into a position where they, they go, give oh, you she's, bad advice. She's gorgeous and she's funny and she's really nice, which you're writing because that person's reading it, and you don't want to upset them by going, you know, she was slightly boring. She was didn't really understand my sense of humour, anything like that, which might have been the case, then the, the readers think, well, she sounds great, you should go out with her again. And then if you end up going out with her a second time, it just seems a little unfair. And also, she doesn't necessarily want to do it again, and you're 
constantly forcing the issue and sort of guilt tripping your way into a second or third date, then uh, it becomes a bit unpleasant for everyone involved. But then the trouble is you've got to walk that tightrope between not being nasty and not being too nice. And then you just end up with sort of like, eh, things are all right. There was a point in the summer where I sourced a lot of the dates through Twitter. I got a little bit, there just a few came through and I thought, oh, these people all sound really interesting. I'd quite like to go out with them all. <laughs> so, such is my greed. And, um, but then the trouble was that they all knew about it. So I found one person in the middle of it that didn't. And I thought, brilliant, I can go to town or not. I can really stagger off. Which I didn't mean to stagger off. And I don't think I did. But it, it just was nice to have a bit of a change where you can go, actually, I can point out some of the bad things that happen on dates. Because otherwise, I just sound like I'm going around going, well, I have such a fabulous time with all the ladies that in you, it just is boring to read and, and, and not truthful. And I look like I'm puffing myself up. And it, it was never meant to be. And did wow. you have a rule about when you would tell them that you <laughs> were writing about that you I am I am I think part of what has led to the, the various incidents in my romantic history is that I am I am dreadful at having those sorts of conversations I have a very flippant approach to conversation with people that I hold dear to me <laughs> so rather than actually talk about anything serious I would rather just sort of skirt the issues and and, and or just nervously hide them and that was pretty much my plan so it was a weight off my shoulders when people knew about the dates in advance because I knew I wouldn't feel guilty about not having told them because I knew I basically didn't have the courage to say, listen, for the last two or three weeks I've been writing about you in a national paper. But Marnie, my now girlfriend and then recurring character of the column, um, I knew with her that she, and partly why it will work between us is that that was the kind of thing that she'd find quite funny, possibly endearing. Um, <laughs> so I kind of I didn't feel as worried about telling her because I think it could have explained some of my more bizarre moments and also would have made me look pretty cool <laughs> pretty cool the big cool dude from England with his with his column so <laughs> unintentional so, uh, pun so there was kind of you know I, I felt a little safer in that one but ordinarily no I um Thankfully, things kind of either fizzled out or, or something bad happened before there was any need to tell anyone. So there were quite a, a lot of people that don't know they've appeared in the story. Okay. So the, so the take-home the take home advice really is uh, that you should set up um, a way of writing about your love life in public because it gets you girlfriends. Because it sounds like the both oh, times you did it, I mean, you got a girlfriend out of it. Yes. I mean, that that isn't very practical advice. <laughs> no, absolutely. But, it's I kind mean, of ironically it said. It just doesn't make it... Uh, but it doesn't make it any less true. Uh, <laughs> people, people should. But I think there is there is an underlying truth to it all, which is that if you make it a focus, then and you, and you put effort into it, and, you know, for a while it was actually my job, and you don't want to sort of be a professional data. That is yeah. essentially a polite way of saying escort. But... <laughs> You know, it was in my interests, professional and financial interests, to make sure I had a date each week. And that is one incentive, but I think I sort of took no prisoners. I had to take no prisoners with that It stops you getting depressed, I guess, as well. Like, a lot of the time when, when you're single, you get depressed because you haven't got, like, a girlfriend. You can't be bothered to make the effort. You start feeling ne negative about yourself. You can't do that if you've got to write about it every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and you also you could maybe do it once, I but, guess. Um, You've got distance from it. If it doesn't work, if the date doesn't work out, it's a good story. 
and that's, that, that, that's a nice position. Uh, absolutely. Um, there's a couple, a part of the anonymous writers coven that I was talking about earlier. Two guys I was in New York with when I first went out with a column who also write an anonymous blog about their love lives. Toast and Biscuit, the wet or dead wager it's called. It's very good. One of the rules of their wager, they're in a race to see who gets married first. Right. It's all very good because they're, they're hopeless. But one of the rules of their wager, it's rule number seven, and it is there are no bad dates, only good stories. Yeah. And so one of the rules of their blog is that they don't hide any, if they have a really terrible date that reflects really badly on them, they can't memory hold that, they can't get that written out of the record, they have to write that story up. Right. And it makes good copy for the blog and they have to sacrifice their dignity yeah, in order to push that forward. And it's true, and, and, and I was speaking to the boys about this recently, and they were saying the one thing that is really hard to write and really unbearable to read is people being happy. I think to an extent that's true, and certainly over a long period of time, you just kind of, it's hard not to sound smug. Well, happy has to be an, I, it has to be an ending, doesn't it? Absolutely, like, yeah. like, like we're, I think people are comfortable with a happy ending, but if it's a happy all the time, that can be, oh, I can imagine a blog where someone's happy every week about their love life to be absolutely... Yeah, yeah. They're like, uh, they're like infuriating people that I'm sure don't actually exist at dinner parties. <laughs> going, yeah. Well, it's fabulous for me because such and such and, oh, well, like, things are going well at work and... Uh, just yeah. moved house and it's... I always and... think it's... <laughs> I'm always... I've never inc- actually met Well, I'm, I'm always inclined when I meet people who are a little bit like that, because that's, that's a, a caricature, but when I meet people who are a little bit like that, I'm always inclined to think that they're kind of overcompensating, mm. that they're kind of making a, a mantra for themselves. Like, if I chant that my life is good constantly, then I will feel better, mm-hmm. you know, I feel it will feel it's good. It might work. It might actually be... It might well work, because, I mean, I, I can fully imagine it working the other way around, where you talk yourself into sort of into misery. Hole. Yeah, absolutely. So there's no reason why it shouldn't work in reverse as well. No, absolutely. When you were saying about the way that Kit Lovelace came to be in The Guardian, you said you know, the first blog, mm-hmm. that resulted in you getting a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. But that girlfriend thought that you should carry on writing the column, you said. Sorry, no, that was a friend that was reading it. Oh, she was, okay. Sorry, since she was the one that pitched it to The Guardian. So ah, she, okay. So she was, a, um, she was just a friend of mine, and she was annoyed at me for having got a girlfriend and then therefore ah, stopping writing. okay, right, um, okay, now I understand. So it disappeared, and I was so, like... And it was, it got to that stage where I went, oh, well, thanks everybody, but the, the problem's been solved, and I don't want to sort of keep writing Here's the happy how, ending. how brilliant my life is now. So it just it went quiet, and then... After a few weeks, she went, where's it gone? I was really enjoying it. And then, um, that's... And then you stopped because on. you had a girlfriend. Yeah, and then... And then the girlfriend... friend threw a spanner in the works by getting me in touch with The Guardian and then... Did getting in touch with The Guardian ruin the relationship that had been formed from the blog? Yes, it... the, the relationship itself before she already dumped me once. So <laughs> it, was, it was sketchy at best. Things w- weren't uh, working brilliantly anyway. So yeah, it did. It did signal a sort of uh, death knell word. Yeah, death knell is a phrase. Um, it was yeah, but you know, it was it clearly wasn't meant to be. I saw her, I saw her recently, and she knows about the column. And we were talking, and she wasn't reading it. I don't think uh, she wanted to particularly, <laughs> for which I can't blame her. But she was asking me how things were going, and at this point, I was just about to go out for the very final 
time to New York where the column ended when I made Marnie my girlfriend or Marnie became my girlfriend I didn't make her she, the ball was entirely in her court yeah. but she asked me if I had a girlfriend and I had that thing where I just thought I don't want to I kind of do but I I think it was that I didn't want to boast or didn't want to be like yeah I've actually got over all of this and you know I'm doing fine now thanks for asking and sort of show off so I really downplayed everything I was like oh well I mean I'm been see, I've been going to New York here and there to see this girl and, you know, well, we'll see what happens and downplaying it all. And she went, oh, well, I, you know, I've been seeing my boyfriend for about eight months now and such and such. And I thought, ah, oh, I wish I'd gone in with the sort of like, yes, I do have a girlfriend, thank you. Because now I can't sort of backtrack and go, oh, no, no, I was just actually, downplaying yeah, it. Actually, yeah. I'm really, really happy. And it just taught me a lesson not to sort of be too... Um, self-effacing in that sort of situation if you're with your ex you should always try and keep the power I guess I guess I don't know I haven't had much experience being this is going to sound terrible but of being single Mm -hmm. um, really because I've been in a relationship for 11 years so um, all my memories of being single come from being a teenager so I think I I never know if they're the worst time to be single yeah (laughs) Yeah. it kind of gets it gets more fun to be single later yeah I, I, I mean, although it becomes less fun again. But. Well, although to be fair, I mean, even even then, I, I had quite long relationships for a teenager, mm-hmm. so I didn't even have very much kind of uh, single time then. But uh, a second of being single when you're a teenager is a is an hour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you start the blog originally because you weren't being successful at dating? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And it was also a way of, I guess, justifying taking an interest in my love life, which is the most ridiculous thing to say, but I know <laughs> I know myself and I know this is what I do. So if I'm ever interested in anything and it's a little bit embarrassing to sh- express an interest in, then I will try and find some way of academically or professionally justifying it. Mm-hmm. By which I mean, I was once interested in martial arts. Uh, and I was, I, I'd have been 20 at the time, rather than just saying, you know, I'm just going to go and take a class. I'm, I'm interested in doing it. I'm an adult. Why, why can't I do this? I decided that I would just try and pitch it as a story to a few people to see if I could go, hey, let me write an article on martial, martial arts, arts and how important it is to learn these sorts of things if blah, 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 and try to get various people on board with it. Um, and rather than going through all that rigmarole for essentially just going to a class that... I could have paid six pounds to go and do at the leisure centre and just done and gone, oh, brilliant, you know, now I've done it and if I wanted to carry on, I did. In the end, I went this huge roundabout way of doing it because I thought people would think I was trying to be, uh, you know, the karate kid or something like that. Like, you didn't, yeah, I know what you mean. There was something slightly embarrassing about being 20 and deciding I wanted to start doing karate. There is intrinsically nothing embarrassing about that. No, 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 I know. But it's that kind of, you don't want to get people going, oh, all right, Bruce Lee, or something like that at you. So, but then I felt if there was this way, I'm going, well, the the reason I'm doing it is because I'm writing an article on it, not because I want to. Yeah, the Um, reason that I, as a single man, am trying to get (laughs) into a relationship is because I want to write about it, not because Exactly that. And, And the idea that I was getting people to lead me around if I did something that was a disaster. So for example, I went speed dating, which is something I've been interested to do, but there's, there's, there feels to be some sort of weird sense of guilt or admission of failure or something like that by going, well, I'm going speed dating, 
and everyone's going to go, God, what's the matter? Can't you get a girlfriend the well, normal way? I can't understand speed dating, but I, I wouldn't necessarily judge someone for doing it, I don't think. I, it's, I don't think it's the best way to meet people. Uh, it's, it's an odd... I don't know a great deal about your employment history, Dave, but have you ever have you ever had to do a sort of icebreaker day? Uh, I've done I've done socialising meal type things where you have to go and meet people and talk to them, and then you move around and you talk to another. Yeah, person. yeah. So you get those so similar, or you get those ones. I remember having to do one where uh, we were given like uh, twenty copies of a free newspaper, and we had to build a ship. So me and about eight people, and uh, everyone had to have a job to do on uh, the ship. So someone makes okay. a telescope and couple of people make all so team building exercises those sorts of things so I've always felt whenever I've done them the exercises themselves are a little bit sort of embarrassing and you know uh, lame but once you've finished it or the day's done and the person who's officiating the day's gone you you have that sense of relief with everybody in the room where you go well we got through that well done and it's more possibly I don't know the psychology of it but it's more probably more about that moment when you can relax and you've all done it and you think, God, what the hell was that? That gets you talking rather than actually the, the process of building a ship. Yeah. And the, the, when I went to speed dating, I found that it was, once that was all done and everybody relaxed and went, God, the sort of structured fun of the night's over. Thank God, it can relax now. And then it was that moment where people sort of stuck around for a drink afterwards and then ended up staying for another hour and a half. Yeah. And there was no pressure on you or anything like that. And people were actually very, but you met 10 people in the course of the night. But uh, uh, in and of itself, the speed dating thing is, is, is a tricky thing to do. And, and, and It's a very small amount of time to get to know someone. Yeah, when you've got to be like me, then you can just talk over somebody for three minutes and then not find anything out about them and look dreadful. See, that's what I worry about myself. And also, the other thing is, I feel like in speed dating situation, inevitably there's going to be a focus on attractiveness and chemistry mm-hmm. because you haven't got very long. So if they don't think you're attractive, like straight away, you don't have a chance. Like, I've never felt like I, I'm going to get a girl from the way I look. Like, the only chance I've got is to just talk incessantly for ages and ages and ages and somehow convince them that I'm interested in (laughs) interesting somewhere inside and so the idea of speed dating I I just don't know how I can get around the obstacles in that on a personal level so that's why it doesn't appeal to me you've been on lots of dates now for the column yeah and for the blog I guess beforehand Mm -hmm. I mean but before that Mm -hmm. did you go on many dates no uh, well not regularly and not not once that I really necessarily enjoyed. But I do remember someone saying to me at one point, I think you're the only person I know that actually does dating and that everybody else just sort of met at parties and hooked up and then that was pretty much it. Mm. But I would <laughs> I would call people up and go, would you like to go to the cinema and see this? And they found my attitudes towards it quite either quaint and weird, like it was some sort of 30s courtship or that I just bought into some sort of American idea of of relationships That's and it true. was kind of like because the word dating the... is quite American American in some ways yeah. in, in, in people in the public consciousness well I always like to refer to it as stepping out but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't but, really people think because you are quite kind of in your mannerisms and in your and, you know, in your tea etiquette uh, <laughs> you, you're, you're, you're quite traditionally British like stere- yeah. oh, not stereotypically no I, but you're, I, you're I, a person but, <laughs> no, but I absolutely know what you mean I, yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's an interesting thing off. that you then were doing. But I guess dating is quite a mannered, a mannered thing. It's quite a kind of ritualised thing. Yeah. It, it, there is less kind of... And I think a lot of... Do you know, I think the reason that I've been on as many of them is exactly a, a, a result of what you're saying. And it's partly I've been on 
I've been on more dates than I should have been on through, I mean, call it what you like, but either manners or lack of courage. <laughs> you know, not just saying, look, this isn't really going anywhere. It's probably best for us both if we don't. But in fairness, the other people have, have done the same to me as well. So there's a, there is a little bit of that dance, which I quite like. There is, there is something about the, the, I don't know, that, that kind of, the chase, as they call it. I, you know, I, there's something about that that I do quite like. But also, you know, enough's enough. I think I've, I've, I've dated enough for them. I was, it was, it was becoming a bit like work after, uh, towards the very end. So I was glad it sort of wrapped up when it did. You know, there's only so much you can put yourself through, I suppose. I mean, what did you learn about yourself from the experience? Ooh, good question. What did I learn about myself? Well, it was it was generally my it was yeah. I mean, generally my faults in that I should just go and do things because it's good to do these things. And they, you know, if you go out and do things and don't really give too much of a damn of what people outside will say about you, um, you know, good things can come from that. Obviously, I, that that isn't to condone any sort of like uh, violent sprees or anything like that. <laughs> you should worry about what people think about you in that situation. But I, I, I guess that I was restricting myself and, and and using those sorts of being inhibited by yeah by going oh well people if I sign up for online dating everyone's going to think I'm a sado and that was one of the ones that really surprised me. I, there was a lot of a lot of the feedback I got for that when I floated the idea of signing up for online dating, which I did do, and I went on a few really good dates as a result of it. People were going, oh, that's, it smacks to me of a last resort. Thanks all the same, but I'd rather let uh, fate do its thing. And I just thought, you know, that, that really, when I heard people saying that out loud or, or typing that in emails or tweets to me, I did think that computers, I know, play a massive part in my day-to-day -day life in terms of I'm sat at a screen for eight to ten maybe more hours a day connected to the internet you know it's at least half of my and now with phones that are connected constantly emails come through yeah 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 I'm always the internet is, a, is an absolutely unremovable part of, of my life and I know I'm not alone in that I just think that you're, you're, you're a, a fool to um, deliberately ignore that and think that there's something I don't know there's something second level about that sort of thing. Yeah, That's all, This is getting dangerously close to me having an opinion. There's a good friend of mine from university that moved down to London and I saw through Facebook or something a couple of pictures of her outside London Bridge by the London Dungeon and she was getting directions yeah. uh, pointed out to her by one of the people that dress up like a sort of Right, by the, corpse. the people, yeah. And anyway, so I clicked through a few more and there was pictures of her at a gig in venue shunt which is underneath was underneath, yeah i've been there it yeah. maybe still is uh yeah it's I, kind I, of I'm always not sure if they, it was, they were going to close it for a bit it always seemed sure like it was in the balance and yeah. it, it always stayed open and so it, it may still be there which is in it's in the cellars right next door to the london dungeons yeah yeah, yeah it's in all the and all the arches in the cellars i thought she was standing 10 feet from me i can't believe this it was the uh, there were all these pictures of her standing watching my friend's band and i was stood just to her yeah 10 feet away from her and there were a few pictures and then i thought hang on a minute Lizzie's in all of these photos. Who took them? And I looked down at the, the owner of the photos and it was a friend 
of a friend of mine who was over from Canada studying for a year, who I'd met once very briefly about four years ago. The two of them were on the same course, they'd become really good friends. And this person who, I, yeah, I'd met once four years ago, had just suddenly like become really good friends with my really good friend and was standing 10 feet away from me two months ago in this gig and well, I called Lizzie, my friend, and said, you're not gonna believe this, I've just seen this, I was standing 10 feet away from you at this gig, oh, that's where are you? We're just about to go and see Warhols from Drury Lane. And I was in Covent Garden. And so I was three minutes walk from them. So I went and I popped in and saw them. They were both sitting there having dinner. It just those sorts of coincidences. That was that, I, that would never have happened if it wasn't for the internet. Like, no, definitely. I never, ever, ever would have known that they knew each other. I wouldn't have seen that Lizzie was down in London. Any of that sort of thing. That's as valid a demonstration of fate if, if you want to believe in that sort of thing yeah. and put your love life to fate. Like these people said, oh, you know, online dating is messing with that. But I don't know why people have that kind of attitude. Is it guardian love? love? Soulmates. Well, soulmates, that's right. That's very busy. That's big, mm. and that's big, and a lot more people are doing that. So maybe their their opinions will change as things go on. But, but I mean, I know a lot of people who've met partners or mm-hmm. sexual partners or whatever through the internet. And, I mean, that's going to increasingly happen more and more. And, yeah. and, and the other day, I was in a children's centre in part of London called Edmonton Green which is where Mm -hmm. some of the riots happened nearby and it's a very deprived area and the staff in the centre were talking about different online dating sites and which were the best like they were just casually talking you know I was kind of earwigging a little bit what they were talking about that's very normalised you know it's gone right down through the strata through all, all parts of society from the Guardian readers to people who don't read the Guardian at all, I doubt the people who I was in. Well, this, uh, what I found weird about Guardian. that, like uh, people were talking to me about it, and I had no idea this existed. Uh, that there's a sort of, it's not code, but depending on what you're after, yeah. there are there are, and this is without getting into sort of specialist sites. Yes, yes. Of which there are are many. Yes. Of <laughs> varying legitimacy and quality and. All that sort of thing. But I, I guess the internet will cater for whatever you like. But within the sort of, I guess, the ones that would advertise on primetime TV are the ones I'm specifically talking about here. Even in those, there is very much, oh, well, if you go on that one, then you're obviously looking for no string sex. If you go on this one, oh, you're looking for someone to sort of make you dinner. Yeah. Or if you go on this one, and there's a real sort of an unspoken... I guess yeah, code, code to it all, uh, which I, I I wasn't aware of, but apparently it's um, <laughs> apparently very well known with certain sites that they're there for for uh, one particular purpose and really one particular purpose only. Um, well, that's what I mean. They were talking about which ones were the free ones. They were they, mm-hmm. I mean, they were trying to work out which, and they were you know one woman had tried it, and but there was no sense when they were talking about it. They were all a little bit embarrassed about it but I don't think that they were the kind of embarrassed they would have been, say, 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, well, not 10 years ago. Well, uh, yeah, a long time ago, five years ago. Yeah. And and so I think it's becoming more and more normalised. I mean, I remember when when I first knew people who did it, I was like, that's crazy. How, you know, mm-hmm. my initial reaction was, you know, you don't know them, they could be stalkers, they could... Yeah. Like, and that's true. But... The more you live online, the more you get a sense for how to judge people. And that's the thing, that we have that in everyday life. And Mm -hmm. the more we use online world, the more we kind of get our own instincts about how to to trust people. And I've met met up, not for dating, but I've met up with people who I've 
only talk to you online first for projects or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. I've never found anybody, you know, dodgy that's come to a band rehearsal or whatever. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, so, No, I know, and it's and it's true, and that's not to say that obviously you should you should, yeah, you should do what you careful, can to be whatever. But, a it's the, but it's the same but it's the same you know, place, it's just, but it's but, the same if you meet with someone in normal yeah. life. You know, you should be careful around those if there's nothing to No, I mean and it does like you I don't understand why it's not like the yeah. internet is a new thing and it was a, a, and and it still is developing and 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 its uh, impact on your life and the way that you interact with people. Like, of course, everybody was right to be skeptical of it to a certain extent. You still are right to be skeptical about it. And well, it's not but, benign, but it's not. No, 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 but I, it's not malicious either. I exactly. Think. It's, but again, it's it, it's just so long as you don't put yourself in needless danger. But the same way, you know, you don't put yourself in needless danger out out on the pavement. Yeah, no, well, that's 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 true. I mean, I guess the the difference is that online you get to meet you get to meet people and talk to people that you wouldn't be able to do. There are there are no real world versions of of those kind of interactions that you yeah. have online. I mean, you know, and that's very very good and 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 in lots of ways, uh, and probably negative in other ways. But I mean, I mean. That's why it seems to me to be a good fit with dating, because in your everyday life you're busy. You're you know you're you're doing yeah. your job. You're doing you you know you've got all of that. You see someone in the street. You go up to someone in the street and ask them out for a date. That is, that's oh, that's quite so a bad. complicated interaction. Oh, and it's it's a crushingly the, one of the final things I had to do for the column was to approach somebody in a coffee shop, and um, I gave them a list of five things. That was one of the ones where they stitched me up. But they I think people thought that that was the way to go about it so I don't think they thought this is going to be the most embarrassing but actually it turned out of the five options or whatever I gave them it was it was the worst thing to do and I spent an entire weekend drinking coffee in different places trying to pluck up the courage to go and speak to someone anyone and the, the truth of it is I could have just given my number to anyone I didn't have to date them I didn't have to speak to them I didn't even have to fancy them I could have just gone hi hello uh, I've just been sitting over there I want you to have this I, I could have folded up a business card and threw it at them to, in order to sort of feel like I'd fulfilled my obligation in terms of yeah, what yeah. I was doing. But I thought, no, you know, the point of this is to actually do it. And it wasn't until the Monday morning. So uh, I had to I had to hand in this column by the Monday afternoon. So I really had a very, very short amount of time in which to act in the Saturday paper. So I, I had like 48 hours. And it wasn't, it was the Monday morning. I had to get up really early and I went to Canary Wharf. And I'd been drinking so much coffee that weekend, I hadn't really slept. I was really in a bad way. And I was pacing up and down a corridor of Canary Wharf. And they've got, you know, they've got so much security there. Apparently they've got heat-sensitive cameras, which is slightly embarrassing, because I don't know what was glowing while I was wandering up and down. But I was wandering, pacing up and down outside the Starbucks, thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my number to her. And then i walk up to the thing, and just be about to do it, and think, right, now's the time. One more, one more lap, one more lap, and I do it, and it honestly, about 20 minutes, and I just, I walked past and thought, she's gone, oh my god, she's gone, and I've got no time, and I'm just going to have to go home and write something and apologise to everyone for being such a baby about this, and then I just went and did it, and it was, I was physically, once I left her, I managed to keep it together while I was speaking to her, I mean, verbally, I was all over the place, but speaking, uh, but, you know, actually physically standing there, I was okay, and then I left, and my body just started to spasm, and it was that I was, oh, it was... I can't, exhilarating in the sort of true sense of the word, but just so desperately unpleasant that I wouldn't. I just yeah. wouldn't recommend it. I think there are much more pleasant ways to no, go about I mean, making the, a meaningful connection with that's someone right. that you can avoid that sort of awful, excruciating, 
personal scrutiny. I've never, I mean, I've never ever. I mean, like I say, I've been in a relationship for eleven years, so I don't have much experience of this. But I, 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 I never would. I've never been up to someone in the street and asked them out, like, mm-hmm. or tried to get their number or anything like that. That's, that's just. And that's so hard for me to work out how to cross that barrier. I mean, it's very painful for me to listen to that story. I'm just imagining being in that situation. Uh, I mean, she had a she had a boyfriend, also she told yeah. me, and it was, and I, I didn't give her my number. I don't think. But I mean, I, I, I can. I've done. You. I think I've done things like that, maybe in pubs or clubs mm-hmm. when I've been drunk. Yeah, well, that's not the same. Yeah, it's not the same kind of engagement. Totally different as well, isn't it? Yeah. But that's the thing. So I just don't understand why people would. That is one thing I definitely, definitely would tell people to be cautious of, much more than dating online. Is if someone comes up to you while you're sitting trying to have a coffee, and is going, "Hello, um, I've just noticed you from over there, and I just, uh, sorry, um, I've written down my phone number, and I just wondered if you, you think, ooh, be really careful where you meet them. Yeah. Whereas you know, online you, you. you might have had a lot of conversations. Yeah, or you could, you know, you it's, it's easy to sort of make, sh- not make sure, but easier to do some background checking against various things. But, you know, so, yeah, there's a, but there's, as we said, the stigma of sort of online romance is sort of disappearing. No, absolutely. Which I think is good. Yeah, I think, it, well, it's, it's certainly good if we're all going to be online all the time, then we should, we have to find new ways of, uh, of being, of, being, of, of, of doing old things because it's like like with exercise or anything we have to kind of find a way around mm-hmm. these things if we're always going to be online we have to find a new way of of getting the things we we need like love and exercise and yeah. you know friendship and all these things the last thing that I ask people is if they have anything that they would like to plug. People have interpreted this as very specific in that they've plugged their projects that they do or they've been very general and even given kind of opinions about what, you know, what they, ideas that okay. they think are worth like, following uh, or whatever. So I, I'm, I say that and I, I, it's become a much more long-winded okay. ending of a show okay. because I've noticed that it's, some people are going to say bigger things I should give everyone the option everyone the opportunity to say bigger things I don't you'll be glad to know have uh, anything big to I guess rather than make me look like I've got nothing left to give the world <laughs> <laughs> I've said my piece now and I'll just slink away I'm going to write a book I think about all of this and the, the experience that I've had in doing this yeah. sort of bizarre thing and I suppose getting that down on tape getting that on record will spur me on to do it because again well you know it's similar to what I was saying before that kind of thing we go, yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm kind of working on a book. Is the sort of thing that you sound like, uh, you know, I just uh, make me sound, feel like it's, I don't want to talk about. So I just want to say once and then that will, if it's on record, then that yeah, will spur, me on, spur me on to do it and I'll actually finish well, it. Well, putting it on record is a good, good way of going about things. I mean, I gave up smoking at New Year and when I just finally decided to give up smoking, I was like, right, I'm going to put it on Facebook and Twitter. And then I'm not going to go on about it. I'm not going to be one of these people who just goes on about the fact that I'm giving up smoking all the time because, God, I can't stand that. But I'm just going to, you know, do one, one, just one status update, just saying that yeah. I'm giving up smoking and then I've done it publicly. So first of all, that tells all my friends that I'm giving up smoking mm-hmm. so don't offer me cigarettes. But it also, it, it, it just, you're, you're, you know, it puts it in a public forum and then I have to do it. Yeah. And then I, then I, if I, if the next time I see my friends I'm smoking... 
then I've publicly failed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I think that's the thing. Yeah. Once you've, it's exactly that. <laughs> it's more the public fa- It's the fear of public failure yeah. that'll make me do it rather than, well, I've said it, so I, I'm a man of my word and I will do that. It's more, oh, if people catch me out, I'm in big trouble. Yeah. That, that is absolutely, I guess, my driving force for anything. The best motivator I've ever found. You tweet, don't you? Yeah, it's the, the, right? the handle is uh, my life, your hands, yeah. for one word, which is a, it's a, a good thing of my column, yeah. I like that as a title, though. And, like, does that come from the original blog? Or the... No, that comes, from the, that comes from my editor of The Guardian, because oh, the one I picked was miles too obscure and <laughs> impenetrable. So they just went, leave it with us, don't worry. <laughs> and entirely to their credit, they were absolutely right. Well, that's cool. It's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you. Uh, better acquainted with you. And the last thing I ask people to do is just to say goodbye to the audience. <laughs> goodbye. Bye. The storytelling night that me and Kit met at is called Spark London, and you can find out all about that at www.sparklondon.com. And you can follow them on Twitter at SparkLDN. And you can like them on Facebook. And the night that we met at was one of the curated nights at the Café Canal Theatre that happens on the first Monday of every month. That night has a different feel from the other Spark Nights. And so the things we were saying are only really relevant to that night. For example, on the third Monday of every month, there is an open mic upstairs at the Ritzy Cinema in Brixton. And it's based around a theme. If you go along and you've got a story that fits that theme, you can get up that night and you can tell your story. There's going to be a new Spark London night at the Hackney Attic, which is part of the Hackney Picture House. The first of those nights is going to be on the 10th of September, and it's going to be hosted by me. I'm going to be there, so if you come along and you say hello to me, then you become eligible to be on this show. I started off going to see their shows, then I was telling stories for them, and now I'm working for them. I'm doing some of their social media as well, and I've been producing some of their podcasts. But Spark London isn't just happening in London. Spark London is going up to the Edinburgh Festival. Grant's True Tales presents Spark London Storytelling. It takes place every day from the 4th to the 14th of August at Riddles Court. And it happens at 5.30pm and it's an hour and a half show with an interval. Tickets are available now, so I'll put a link to that in the podcast notes. Talking about Edinburgh... This seems like a good time to tell you that the next episode of Getting Better Acquainted that comes out next Wednesday is going to be the first of this year's Edinburgh Festival season. So last year I had an Edinburgh Festival season where I had conversations with some people who were taking shows up to Edinburgh and an Edinburgh special where I went to Edinburgh and recorded previews and interviews and experiences and memories and all sorts of things based around the Edinburgh Festival well I'm going to do that again this year which is a bit nerve-wracking because there's not very much of a, of a turnaround time between uh, going up to the festival and putting the special out so the next few weeks we're going to have lots of Edinburgh related episodes and I'm going to be telling a true story in Edinburgh I'm going to be performing on the 4th of August so I'll be there that night so again if you come along and see Grant's True Tales presents Spark London Storytelling on the 4th of August. You'll see me, you can meet me, and that makes you eligible to come on the show. I'm also in the show notes going to put a link to the episode of the Spark London podcast where I told 
the true story that me and Kit discuss earlier on in this episode. And if you haven't listened to that, you can even hear Kit playing a note on his piano and telling me that it's time to wrap things up. And that Spark story also was part of episode one of Getting Better Acquainted, so I'll also put a link to that there. And lots of Spark London storytellers have appeared on Getting Better Acquainted so far. They're some of the most fascinating and wide-ranging conversations I've had on the show. And I'll put a link to the playlist in the show notes. Anyway, there's no kit here to play a note and tell me to wrap it up. But it is time for me to wrap it up. So thanks for listening to this extra bit of adverty stuff at the end of the podcast. And you'll hear me next week in the first of the Getting Better Acquainted Edinburgh 2012 season. Thanks for listening. Bye.